Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. This is my first time at New Life um, on a Sunday morning, so it is such an honor to be able to share the word with you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so excited that four years ago, John and I accepted a call to be a part of the Center Church in Byron Center and worked with Brad and Sam when they were at Frontline, and now we just have been able to welcome New Life over the last couple of years and um, so deeply aligned with our zero mission of seeing zero lives unchanged by Jesus in the whole West Michigan area, Michigan area, and all over the world. So I'm grateful to be be serving with you, even though we've never met before. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, John and I are expecting our first baby here in the next couple months. And, uh, you know, we love Brad and Sam. I say Brad is really smart because he asked me to do this about three months ago when I was about 20 weeks pregnant, not 32 weeks pregnant before the waddling really started. So, um, he was smart in that, in doing that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're so excited here. We're welcoming her in Not that I'm counting, but um, one month, two weeks, six days, 21 hours, 52 minutes, and uh, 18 seconds. So (laughs) May 19th is coming fast. That's her. She's adorable. I love her so much, um, and we're we're so excited to to meet her. Um, Pregnancy, this is our first baby. We've been married for seven years, so we just can't wait to welcome her. Pregnancy has been an incredibly interesting season for us over the last seven months. We have learned a lot of different things. It's been a season of learning as we've learned what it's like to be pregnant, learned a lot about how John is an amazing, I already knew he was an amazing husband, but has been such a support to me. Um, I've learned a lot about what it's like to just slowly lose control of what's happening to me and um, how hard it is to get out of bed now versus how much I took that for granted when I wasn't pregnant. Um, It's been a time of joy just to be able to share in this with our families. We're both the oldest of four siblings, so this is the first grandbaby on both sides. And so you can imagine our parents have been waiting for this for about seven years, probably, (laughs) since the day we got married, and um, season of joy for us, for sure. But I think overall, what has defined this pregnancy and what has probably defined anybody in the room who has been pregnant or has been walking alongside someone who has been, is that it's a time of waiting. From the moment that you take the test, you're waiting the 30 million years that it takes for the results to come through. Three minutes feels like an eternity when you're waiting for that result. Um, it's a season of waiting for the first appointment so that we could hear a heartbeat for the first time and then waiting to tell our parents for the right moment, which we did during Thanksgiving and was really, really special because both of our families got to be a part of it. Waiting for the first ultrasound where we got to see her for the first time and realize there actually is a human that is growing inside of me right now, which is insane, waiting to figure out the gender and now waiting for her just to be here. It's a, it's a time of waiting a serious, serious time of waiting. And that's all we can do as we get ready for her, as we wait day after day for May 19th to arrive. And we really, really can't wait. You know, there's 
there's an interesting thing about the story that we're going to talk about today because, and it's even been proven in our service today about how much we love to talk about Friday of the story of Jesus because that's when Jesus was crucified. That's when he suffered and gave up his life even though he didn't have to so that we could have eternal life. And we love to talk about Sunday because Jesus didn't have to stay dead forever. He defeated death, came out of the grave, and uh, defeated death so that we could have everlasting life should we choose to take it. We have a Good Friday service, and we have a Sunday morning Easter service, but we forget that there are three days, and there's three parts to this story. We often forget about that day in the middle. We spend a lot of time on Friday and Sunday, but we talk very little about Saturday. There's really fun periods of waiting. You know, there's like waiting for a baby or after we graduate, right before we go to college or after we get engaged, right before we get married or um, after we retire and wait for this new season of our life to start. Those are fun periods of waiting, but oftentimes we're in periods of waiting that maybe aren't so fun. We might have gone through those before in our life. We might be going through them right now. I think I can say without knowing you collectively, we've all been in a period of waiting for the last year. There are key moments in each one of our lives where we remember our Friday of COVID-19, whether it was the day we got sent home from work and have been working from home ever since, whether it was the day that we figured out that our kids were going to be at home, the day that school closed and haven't gone back yet, praying for you, um, the day that church shut down and we realized we were going to have to totally shift how we did it and now we have cameras in the room that maybe we didn't have before because we've collectively moved into this time of waiting of from when Friday happened to when Sunday will come. And so collectively, we've been through that with COVID-19, but our Saturdays, our personal Saturdays that I don't know for each and every one of you could be a few minutes long. They could be a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, a few months. Some of you have been living in Saturday for years. Some of us have been living in Saturday for years. It's after we've been served the papers for divorce, but we haven't really figured out what that looks like with our kids yet and who's going to go where at what time. It's After, because of budget cuts, we lost our jobs, but we're not totally sure yet where the provision for our next meal is going to come from or how we're going to send our kids to college now on one income or no income. It's after the loss of a loved one, tragically or expectedly, and we haven't totally figured out what our day-to-day life looks like when we can't pick up the phone and call them like we used to. Or after the diagnosis that isn't as good as we wanted it to be, but before we know the plan of recovery, if there even is a plan of recovery, we are all in some way living in the tension of Saturday like the people of Christ did after he died and before he rose again. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we acknowledge Saturday as a real thing, as we acknowledge waiting as a real thing, is what do we do on Saturday while we wait for Sunday? You know, there's not too much in the Bible about Saturday. So no one wants to talk about it. It's not fun to talk about. Jesus is gone. He's not around. But there is enough in the Bible that we can look at. And we're going to look in John's account today in John chapter 19. So just to give you a quick review of what's happened on Friday, Jesus went to trial and Pilate sent him to be crucified. He suffered and he died on the cross and he was amongst other sinners and people watched him as he was tortured and he lost his life. 
and there was a darkness, a period of darkness as the world went black because of what had just happened. This is also coinciding with Passover. If you're not familiar with Passover, it's the the celebration of what God did for Israel way back in what we refer to as the Old Testament. But for them, it was a period of bondage when they were held captive by the Egyptians and God passed over their homes at night and said, if you paint the blood of the lamb on the top of your door, I will pass over your home and I will spare your lives. And if you don't, I'm going to, uh, somebody in your family is going to die in that home. And that eventually led Israel into freedom hundreds of years later when they made it to the promised land. So even to that day, in that couple days when Jesus was crucified, it coincided with this Passover celebration. So there's tension in the air. There's a lot of people around. And I think, I wasn't there, but I can guess that almost certainly no one has any, I, no one has any idea what to do on Saturday. No idea what to do while they're waiting. So let's look at John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. We'll start with just the first couple. And this is what it says in the New New International Version. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So in these first couple verses, we're introduced to two characters, two people who might help us figure out what to do while we're waiting on Saturday. So the first person we're introduced to is Joseph of Arimathea. If we're all collectively good with it, we're going to just call him Joseph. So I'm not saying Arimathea a hundred times throughout this entire thing. Um, and Nicodemus. And so just a little bit of context is that under Roman rule, criminals, because they had committed a crime and because they were publicly humiliated by being killed on a cross, no one had any reason to come and take their body down and bury it. There was no reason that they should be honored. There was no reason they should be buried with any sort of value or um, respect or honor because they had died a death of somebody who had committed crimes and had done bad things in the community. And however, if there was somebody of um, importance, if there was a family member who had money or there was somebody who had some sort of social status that requested to take the body, then they could do that. And here we see that Joseph is that person because the first thing that we learn about him is that he goes to Pilate, remember the person who sentenced Jesus to death and says, I would like to take Jesus's body and I would like to bury him. So we learn from this passage and from other parts of the Gospels. I'd encourage you to read this in the other Gospels as well, because we learn sort of a complete picture when we do that. We learn that Joseph is a good and upright man, and he's a member of the council. So we learn he's in Jewish leadership, and that's from the book of Luke. We also learn from this passage that he was a disciple of Jesus, but it says he was a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. So just in those couple sentences, we kind of get the vibe that Joseph is living a Hannah Montana life, okay? He he loves, uh, or Clark Kent life, if Hannah Montana doesn't land for you. He, um, he... 
It's okay if it doesn't. <laughs> That's dating me a little bit. Uh, he, he's concerned. He's a member of the Jewish council, so he's very legalistic. He cares a lot about having his ducks in a row, making sure that everything is going the way it's supposed to be going outwardly. But then he also understands that Jesus is less concerned about the outward appearance and more concerned about what's happening in their hearts. So Joseph has made this transition inwardly, but he hasn't quite yet publicly told people. He's still living this double life. And now he's taking a step out and going to Pilate and saying, I want the body of Jesus, acknowledging that he has some respect for Jesus to the point where he wants to give him a proper burial. So we learn that about Joseph. Then we move on and we see that there's another person in this passage, and that's Nicodemus. And so from this passage, we only know that he, it says he visited Jesus at night. Okay. That doesn't really give us any information about who this man is, why he's a part of the burial of Jesus with Joseph, what he's doing there, you know, what, is, what his um, role is. And so we have to figure out when he visited Jesus at night and why he did that. So we've got to play detective a little bit and, uh, and figure that out. So we look, a quick Google search or a knowledge of the book of John or a general knowledge of the Gospels would point us back to John chapter 3. One of our favorite verses in um, all of scripture is found in John chapter 3 and happens in the context of Nicodemus and Jesus' conversation. But what Nicodemus is, as we learn in John chapter 3, is that he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish council, and he comes to Jesus at night. We learn that in John chapter 3, and that's why it says it in John chapter 19. And he says, among other things, they have a conversation, but he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. He's doing the same thing as Joseph. He's acknowledging that Jesus is who he says he is, but he's doing it in the cover of darkness. Why would Nicodemus come to Jesus in the dark? Think about it. Why do we turn the lights off when we're having a surprise party and we want nobody to know that there's 40 people in the house when the person of honor walks in? Why do we turn down the brightness on our phones when we don't want somebody to see? Why do I have a note on my phone that's locked for John's 30th birthday that's coming up in a month? Because I don't want you to see what I'm planning for you. We do that because we don't want anybody to know he was going to Jesus in the first. He doesn't want anybody to know he's going to Jesus in the first place. So he, like Joseph, is trying to keep it a secret that he believes Jesus is who he says he is. So we learn Joseph is a secret disciple of Jesus, and we learn that Nicodemus visited Jesus at night. And up to this point, Joseph and Nicodemus have been following Jesus from afar, in hiding, without anybody knowing it. And now, on Saturday, the time where they have really nothing to gain but everything to lose, they're taking steps forward in their faith that they don't really have to take if nobody addressed them about it. They're following him closer than anyone. And when the disciples are nowhere to be found and when people are freaking out and chaos has kind of broken out, they are choosing to be more faithful than they ever have before. Why? That doesn't make any sense. And so we have to read on to figure out why they did it, what their process, thought process was of waiting on Saturday and what that has to do for us today. So let's read on in John chapter 19 in the next couple verses. Nicodemus, we just learned about him, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. 
At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So now that Joseph and Nicodemus have the body, they begin to go through the Jewish burial customs. They've gotten it from Pilate. They have what they need, and they, they start to go through the customs of preserving the body with spices to kind of prevent the smell of the decay, and then also wrap him in strips of linen to sort of preserve those spices next to the body. And I want to I wanna talk about this for a second, because I think it's really important when we're talking about what it means to wait and, and what Joseph and Nicodemus did and the significance of of this. So I would like you to raise your hand. Are you the person who goes grocery shopping for your family? If you're that person, raise your hand. Okay. Some of you might tag along every once in a while, but for most part, people who, who raise their hands are the ones who are going to Meyer, going to Aldi, wherever you're going. You know that a jar of spices is not cheap. If you go to Meyer, this is a Meyer brand um, of our smoked paprika that I happened to grab this morning, you know that this can run anywhere from maybe $3 on the cheaper side up to 9 or $10 if you're getting like the fancy organic pasteurized, I don't think spices are pasteurized, that's cows, but if you're, if you're getting the high quality, if you're getting the high quality good in the glass jar, you know, these can be very expensive and this is only 2.4 ounces, okay, so we haven't even begun to breach a pound of spices, let alone 75 pounds. And it says Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to wrap and preserve the body of Jesus. Now, it's all over the map a little bit about how much this could have potentially cost, but the general consensus combined with inflation and some of the numbers that some of the scholars have guessed is that Nicodemus spent close to $100,000 for these spices to preserve Jesus' body. For him to have given up that financial amount of money to preserve Jesus' body would have been an incredible sacrifice. And not only was it an incredible financial sacrifice, but I want to talk for a second about the power of spices too. If you're the, if you're the shopper, are you also the cook in the family? Can I get a hand raise if you're the one who does most of the meals? Okay. Okay. John and I have a good thing going. He goes shopping most of the time and I do most of the cooking. So it works out pretty well. But if you're cooking or you've you know, put a recipe together before, you know that there are some recipes that only call for a quarter teaspoon of spices and some call for an eighth of a teaspoon of spices, which is just so minuscule, you might not even be able to see it. Um, and that's because spices are powerful. It doesn't take a lot of this substance to really make a difference in a dish. Okay, you can taste it with just a little bit being added to it. And here's why that's significant. Just put yourself in the situation for a second of Nicodemus walking down the road in a market on a hot day with 75 pounds of smoked paprika in his bag. Just think about the smell that that would have attracted to him. Think about, think about the visual of it because he's walking down the road with these spices. And then just think about the smell that would have surrounded him as he prepared to go do something that maybe people hadn't expected him to do. Nicodemus is clearly and intentionally moving from a secret disciple to somebody who can't be mistaken for anything other than a follower of Jesus. And Joseph made a significant sacrifice too. In our, um, in our passage here in John, it only tells us that they buried him in a new tomb because it was close to the garden where Jesus was crucified. But if we look in the other parts of the gospels, we see that it was actually Joseph's new tomb that he had just bought for his family. 
It wasn't uh, a random one. They didn't, you know, crash a grave or something. This was one that belonged to Joseph. And in verse 41 and 42, it says, Jesus was laid in a tomb where no one had ever been laid. So through the context of the other gospel accounts, we learn that this is a tomb that Joseph had recently, maybe recently secured for his family. It's new and it hasn't had anybody laid in it yet to this point. And by Jewish customs, if somebody was laid from another family in a tomb, you could no longer be in that tomb. It was considered unclean. A body was considered unclean and it wouldn't allow you to be a part of it anymore. So Joseph's giving up his family's security of knowing that they have a place to lay when they die because they had to lay Jesus somewhere. And so Joseph gave this place up so that Jesus could be honored. Jesus could have the burial of a king in a new tomb, giving up Joseph's uh, future security for his family. And I don't know the process of buying a new tomb. I'm guessing it wasn't as simple as ordering a new one on Amazon Prime. So I know that this was something that Joseph gave up that took, took something from his family. So through this passage, we learn that Joseph and Nicodemus made these incredible steps, took these incredible steps in this moment where no one had any idea what to do. They were waiting for Sunday, but they still were doing something. They had everything to lose. They really had everything to lose socially, politically, financially, for their future security, and they gave it all for Jesus, who wasn't even there at that point. Because just 24 hours beforehand, Jesus had given it all for them. Amen. It was countercultural, right? We know, we don't know much about Saturday, but we know enough to know that the disciples, the people who had been this close to Jesus the whole three and a half years that he was doing ministry, were suddenly nowhere to be found. They were hiding, they were scared, they were paralyzed by fear. Nowhere to be found. Joseph and Nicodemus are already kind of in the right by being Pharisees, being a part of the Jewish council. Nobody's looking to them to make these decisions. No one's expecting them to step out and give these things up. But they were compelled to do what they did because they wanted to honor the king who had just given it all for them. And they were impacted so deeply by his sacrifice that they had no other choice but to move forward in steps of faithfulness. Their hearts had been transformed. Those whose hearts were so hard that they couldn't look past what Jesus was doing when he was there were suddenly moved to the faithfulness of Jesus because of what he had done for them. So what did Joseph and Nicodemus do on Saturday? They took the next step. They took the next step. They didn't know if what they were doing was helpful. Jesus was gone. It was quiet. It was dark. They didn't know if what they were doing was helpful. They didn't know if it would have anything to do with bringing Jesus back. They didn't know if it would move anything in the right direction, but their hearts were compelled to serve their savior while they waited for Sunday. And so while they were waiting, they served. They saw a need. They saw Jesus needed to be buried. They saw something needed to happen to move the story forward. And they took the next step they knew how to take. And they did what they, next right thing what they, with what they had in front of them, with their finances, by giving their money to preserve and bury the body of Jesus, their time, their social status. Touching Jesus' body would have made them ceremonially, un, ceremonially unclean uh, to participate in the Passover services and, and festival that was happening that weekend. So they took themselves out of their position of leadership to humbly prepare the body of Jesus. They did what they knew how to do with the resources that they had in front of them. What can we do on Saturday while we're waiting for Sunday? 
we can do the same thing. We can take the next right step. We can do the next faithful thing that makes sense with what we have in front of us. And here's the thing. All of our Saturdays are so different. And I would love to be able to give you an answer. I would love to be able to point to scripture and say, this is the next right step for you, given your situation. But all of our situations and our Saturdays are different. We're all waiting in something different. Some of us have been waiting for a couple hours. Some of us got news this week that's totally rocked our world. Some of us have been sort of in this Saturday since last year with COVID. Some of us have been in Saturday for much, much longer. And it's all mixed up in the context of our situation. It's all mixed up in the messiness of our relationships. It's all grounded in sin that has either been a part of our lives or has been done to us. And it's all different depending on where we're at. But I know for certain, based on this passage, Joseph and Nicodemus didn't know what to do, what was perfect, but they knew that they had to take that next faithful step. God is asking us to do the same thing. You know, some of you are like the disciples. You're paralyzed and you've been paralyzed for a long time and you know what the next step is, but you're too uncertain about whether or not it's going to cost you, whether or not it's going to cost me, how it's going to affect the people around you, whether or not it'll go over well or it'll be met with some opposition or some rejection. Joseph and Nicodemus moved past that and they didn't know what they were going to do. But here's the coolest thing about what Joseph and Nicodemus did. Not only did they make some of their most important spiritual decisions and move forward in their faith very, very tangibly on Saturday while they were waiting, but what they did by preserving Jesus's body, what they did by getting him into a tomb, by rolling the stone into the tomb. We kind of see that picture of the big, perfectly round circle that rolled into the tomb. But what people say is actually the tomb was a divot and the stone kind of went on a downhill in. So it was really easy to get in, like to roll it in. Very, very difficult to get it out. A little bit more uh, of a puzzle piece than sometimes we think about. So putting that stone in there, then Pilate knows that that's happened. So he sends a guard. We learned in another one of the Saturday accounts that he sends a guard to stand there. On Sunday when Jesus rose, there was absolutely no question that Jesus had risen from the dead. There was no question that he had been buried. There was no question that he had been preserved. There was no question that he was gone and that he came back to life. And so Joseph and Nicodemus's faithfulness to take the right next step further proved that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the son of God, that when he rose with the nail marks in his hands, that he truly had come back to give everlasting life. While we wait for Sunday, when we're sitting in Saturday, the best thing we can do is the next thing that we know how to do. You know, I've done this well in my life. I've done it not very well in my life. There's been times where I've waited well, times where I've not. I'm sure you can think about those things in your life. Um, when John and I moved to Grand Rapids and we went from two incomes to one for a period of time, we didn't really know when that Saturday would end for us. We didn't know when the finances would come back in a way that would help us to continue to meet some goals that we wanted to meet and to be able to provide for our family in the way we wanted to. But we knew that our next step was to continue to tithe and give faithfully to our church because we believed in what the kingdom was doing. We believed in what our church was doing. And we knew that God would come through on a Sunday at some point, And he did and provide what we needed to get back to where we wanted to be. We continued to pay off our debt. We continued to tithe and we continued to serve in that way. Um, 
about nine or 10 years ago when John and I were in college and I was 13 hours in a border crossing away from my family and I got a phone call that my mom and dad were splitting up and no longer going to be married after 24 years of marriage. And I knew when my mom got off the phone that she was going to be telling my three younger siblings and I had no way of helping. I had no way of fixing it. I had no way of making Sunday come faster. And I knew when I went home at the end of that semester that life was going to be dramatically different than when I had left it six weeks beforehand or two months beforehand. I, I was in a time of waiting, and I couldn't do anything to fix it. I couldn't do anything to make it better. I couldn't do anything to redeem that relationship. And in a lot of ways, we're still kind of waiting for Sunday to come in that. And there's a lot that still hangs in the balance there. But I do know in that moment, in that season of waiting, what I could do is I could surround myself with a community of people. And that's what I did. People who loved me, people who would mourn with me and cry with me, but also keep me grounded in the truth of Jesus and his hope for me and his love for me that transcended my waiting period and helped me to grow closer to him while I waited for some sort of redemption and, and hope in that situation. Um, you know, for you, it's, it's something that you know so tangibly that I don't. But if it's in a, a moment of, like we talked about earlier, in a moment of waiting for after the divorce and waiting for some of those next steps, maybe it's speaking honorably about your spouse or that other person in front of your kids, knowing that they're watching you and knowing that they're listening to you in this time that's just as tumultuous for them. Speaking from experience on that, if, if it's the job loss and you're waiting for the financial um, consistency to come back, you know, your budgets were cut and you are in that period of not having that, those finances, maybe it is still continuing to tithe or starting to tithe, which would be wild to start to give to the church in a moment where you personally don't know where your next paycheck is coming from and watch how God can be faithful in that. If it's the loss of a loved one and you're still reeling and trying to figure that out, you can't replace that person and, and Sunday doesn't look like that person coming back, but maybe it does look like surrounding yourself in a community of people that can give you support that you need when you need it, whether it be in a small group at church or through different family members or whoever that might be. Amen. If it's if it's as spiritual, if I can say this, if it's as spiritual as you haven't taken that step even to start a relationship with Jesus yet, and you know it, and you know it in your heart, but you just haven't made that commitment to say, I'm going to make Jesus Lord of my life. Maybe that's what you need to do in this next week. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, I'm surrendering my time where I'm waiting for everything to be right. I'm waiting for my life to be lined up and I'm just not going to wait anymore because you don't need me to be perfect. You just need me to be surrendered and present. And I'm going to take that next right step into a relationship with you. That might be your spot or you might be just one step past that. You have taken that step. Maybe it was this week. Maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was 40 years ago and you haven't gotten baptized yet. And Brad talked about baptism happening next Sunday. If you have done that yet. That is your next step. I can tell you that with certainty. That is your next step if you haven't done that yet to say, Jesus is Lord of my life and I'm going to play a Joseph and Nicodemus card and I'm going to step out into this next step of faithfulness by publicly saying, Jesus is the Lord of my life and I want my church community to come around me and celebrate me in that. But whatever it is, remembering that God is who he says he is, that God is here in the waiting, that God is working, that God called people like Joseph and Nicodemus into a deeper 
deeper faithfulness while he waited for Sunday. Our Saturdays don't have to even be defined by the same type of waiting because we know what happens. We know that Jesus comes back. We know that he gives us eternal life. We know that his redemption is real. We know that healing is not as far away as maybe we think it is. We know that God is not as far away as we think he is. He is not quiet. He is not distant. He is right here. He's right in this room and he's in our hearts. And we know Sunday is coming. We get to celebrate that together next week. Pray through your Saturday this week. Pray about what your next step is. Uh, Don't wait like the disciples. Don't be paralyzed. If you've been in that place, Jesus is calling you to move out of that. He's calling you to move into that next step, whatever it might be. And I encourage you to seek that out. Talk to Brad. I'll be around if you want to talk after service about what that next step is for you. And I'm excited for God to do that in you, whatever that might be. For Joseph and Nicodemus, it changed the world. It changed the world. And it can change your world, and it can change the world of our community, and it can change the world um, in the church as a whole. So would you pray with me? I want to invite you to consider that, and we're going to worship together um, in these next few minutes. Jesus, we acknowledge Friday and we acknowledge Sunday, the good of your sacrifice and the miracle of your resurrection. But we also recognize that a lot of our life isn't spent in those two moments or events. A lot of our life is spent on Saturday. We spend a lot of time waiting. We spend a lot of time hoping. We spend a lot of time unsure of what our next step is spend a lot of time um, angry and confused about why things have worked out the way that they have because of the brokenness of this world and um, things are unfair and things are taken away from us sooner than we would have wanted. Things don't turn out the way we want. But you are a God of hope. You are a God of redemption. You sent your son so that we didn't have to live in that brokenness so that we know that there's a better way. We know that there's a light in the darkness. And we're grateful for that. And in this time of waiting, whatever it might be for any of us in this room, would you help us to remember that? Would you help us to look at Joseph and Nicodemus, two people who had so much to lose, but they chose to take steps forward in their faith because of the power of Jesus that compelled them to do that. So I ask for each of my friends in this room and those who are watching online, I ask that today you would make it crystal clear to them what their next step is, what my next step is. Help us to be laser focused on what you want. Help us to step forward in faith, even if it's scary, even if it costs us something cost Joseph and Nicodemus so much in the world, but it gave them everything in their relationship with you. Help us to prioritize that, even though it's hard. It's way easier said than done. I get that. But would you give us the boldness to do that? Would you empower us with your spirit? Would you move us into a deeper relationship with you so that when we come out of this waiting period, we can look back and say, you were faithful and you were good, even when We didn't know what was going on. God, we love you. It is a privilege to serve you. It is an honor to be in your church today, worshiping in this community. I pray that you would 
Move through each of us. Move through this last song as we worship you. Help us to remember your faithfulness to us, we pray. We ask this all in your name. Amen.